Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Today's Baseball America podcast is sponsored by SeatGeek. Baseball America podcast listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BA20 today. Now it's time to talk baseball. This edition of the Baseball America podcast, we're going to talk international baseball. I'm John Manuel with J.J. Cooper. And, of course, if we're talking international baseball, that means Ben Badler has to be involved. And, Ben, we're in the midst of dropping just ridiculous knowledge on our readers, uh, but specifically our subscribers with our international reviews. So thanks for taking time out of that schedule to record this podcast. Busy day for all of us, but um, I know you've been in the midst of it, so thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on. It's ridiculous. It's probably a, a fair word for <laughs> all the, uh, the information we're putting out, but... Uh, I obviously appreciate that people are, are this interested and this passionate as well about all these lower-level international signings that are uh, just coming through the, the bottom levels of the system right now. Well, the, and this is the funny thing about this, uh, because it's clearly, you know, it's a longer road for most, if not all, international players from their signing class when they're 16 or 17 years old to when they really start making a major league impact. I mean, just this spring, we're looking at Gary Sanchez who was the second largest bonus in 2009 to, to Miguel Sano. He got $3 million. He immediately jumped into the Yankees' top ten, I remember, because I did it. Put him straight at number seven. I uh, might even put it higher. Um, and guys, a lot, and he's an exception in the money that he got, but guys like that jump in, and here we are six, almost seven years later, and he's still not an established major leaguer. And he was one of the better players in that class, and he's been a good prospect, and he's had a good minor league career, but... Um, and I like how you put it last week, Ben, when you were like, uh, in one of our meetings, you said, we're, I was like, let's pump up the international signing classes. And I think you even said, yeah, those, these are all the guys that will be in Matt Eddy's spring training release lists five years from now. And that's part of it. But it's also, uh, basically, you're doing draft report cards for every team's international signing list. And it, we could be flipping about it. And some of the guy, you know, it's like anything. Baseball's very hard to prognosticate, especially when the players are... 14, 15, 16. But I just think you can't look any further for... I know there's a little correlation now, and we're talking about the 2016 farm system rankings, and we're team signed in 2015. But I can't escape the fact that our number one organization talent rankings team is the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're also number one in international spending in last year's signing period. And that our number 30 organization is the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and they're number 30 in international spending. And they're not just number 30... It's like Wiley Coyote like passed every anvil he ever got handed onto the Angels. They're at the bottom. Uh, $660,000. Yeah, $660,000. I mean, I guess actually proportionally in terms of percentage, they're not that far away from the Orioles or the Athletics, Ben. But um, I want we're going to talk about the Dodgers. But I guess I want to talk about uh, just how the Angels got here because this is an organization. Uh, you and I have talked about this not on podcasts. But the Angels are an organization that signed Irvin Santana, that signed Alberto Callaspo and Eric Ibar and Francisco Rodriguez. These are four 15-year pros. These are guys who've had long, successful, major league impact careers. I'm sure I've missed some international guys that the Angels signed. But this used to be an organization that really did it right internationally. How did it go so wrong for the Angels? Yeah, well, to start with, they had... You know, they, they had a limit this year in terms of what they could spend on international players. They went over their bonus pool to sign Roberto Baldacchin, the Cuban shortstop, for $8 million, which which really was like $16 million with the penalty. And, all right, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, I can understand where, all right, you think Baldacchin is this, this special type of talent and you want to go over for him and, and you're looking at – your major league record, and you're going to have one of the lowest bonus pools in baseball the following year. You really don't spend that. This is not an organization that really spends more than $300,000 on a single international player anyway, so it's not that big of a penalty relative to what they usually do. So if you really think Baldacchin is a, you know, a top-of-the-first-round kind of guy, then, then go for it, sure. I think there was a lot of disagreement on, on whether Baldacchin was that type of player. Certainly had a disappointing uh, debut to his career. The, the reports were, were not very encouraging 
uh, after he signed, and then there was a lot of uh, mixed opinions on him before he signed as well. Uh, but but this year, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's 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 strange to see a team that really needs a lot of help That's on the lost. farm, to put it mildly. That's my point. Um, yeah, and and you contrast it. You know, it's it's an easy contrast with the Dodgers, just because they spent more than anyone and they have the best farm system and and their neighbors. But I think really you have to look at what the the Red Sox and the Yankees and and the Rays did, three other teams that were under under the penalty this year for going over their international bonus pool, and those teams spent extremely aggressively, obviously within their single-player bonus limits. They couldn't give anyone more than $300,000, but they were still really aggressive signing players. The Angels took the opposite approach, traded away all of their international bonus slots, didn't sign all that many players, and then spent uh, under seven hundred thousand dollars for the entire year, and they got a you know they got some interesting guys out of it, but uh, it's not all about how much money you spend. I don't think you need to be you know even breaking your bonus pool just to sign good players, but uh, there's also a certain you know there's a certain threshold where where you need to be able to to spend a certain amount of money just to get some type of, of talent. I mean, everybody's going to be able to find those sleeper guys who you sign for $30,000 and then suddenly pop up, especially with pitching. But, I mean, the Yankees were under their bonus pool. They signed, like, I think, 57 players last year. The Red Sox signed over 40 players. The Rays were very aggressive as well. Um, you know, some of those clubs have, have two Dominican Summer League teams, so they have multiple uh, rosters to fill out so they have more opportunities to give those players. Uh, but but it's just a real stark contrast between what the Angels chose to do by trading away all of their, their international slot values and, and staying away from spending much uh, internationally overall compared to what the Red Sox and Yankees and, and what Tampa Bay did last year. Those are, those are farm systems that are year after year toward the top of our farm system rankings. This isn't necessarily new for the Angels. It's been, I mean, I think, what was it, four years ago, J.J., you did their top 30. They didn't bring a single player from their Dominican Summer League team to the States, even to the Arizona League. So their program, uh, they've had a lot of changes. They had Clay Daniels in the late uh, part of the last decade who was fired. They had, uh, you know, they had a lot of uh, scandal in their international department. They rebuilt a little bit. Uh, was it Mark Russo was their... Uh, International director Ben had had some wins there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it kind of he had to go in and essentially just rebuild the entire infrastructure, right. uh, the whole scouting infrastructure from scratch, just hiring scouts and and just rebuilding the program on a, a real shoestring budget. Which you know they they still have that kind of they, they have a scouting staff in place now, but really just the the owner and, and senior management. Maybe that'll change now with. Uh, Jerry DePoto gone and, and Billy Epler in charge. Obviously, Billy Epler came from the Yankees, where they were not afraid to spend a lot of money not on uh, international players, and then had a lot of success doing that. Uh, not that he was all that much involved in, in that side of the arena for them, but I'm sure he saw firsthand all of the success that they were able to produce internationally just by being committed to that market. So it really just comes down to ownership and, and senior management being willing to commit more uh, to to the international side. And the thing that jumps out to me also is, is this is a team that consistently lacks draft picks as well. I mean, partly because they sign free agents, partly because they've been successful so they draft late, but you really have a, a, a tornado here of, of consequences where you have a team that often – They've had multiple drafts in recent years where they haven't drafted. They've had one pick in the top 50, or one year they had one pick in the top 100. Then you have a situation where when they did have a, a first-round pick, a significant one, they took Sean Newcomb, they traded him away. Right. And so you have a team that really isn't restocking in the draft and then is also doing this on the international side where they're not spending money internationally. As you said, it's not like you have to spend a lot of money to have success internationally, but it's going to be harder to do it when you're spending 660000 isn't it? 
Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, and then the trainers down in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela all see those numbers, too. I mean, it's it's one, they already know your limitations for a single player when you're under the penalty, but they all see, all right, well, this team is spending under a million dollars. They're not giving anybody more than $200,000. You know, it's, you know, the relationships only go so far. <laughs> in Latin America when you're, everybody knows that you're not going to be spending money on players. So even just getting the opportunity to see players can be difficult when you're you're not spending money. And it's like you said, you don't have to spend a ton of money. I mean, just give your scouts 2 $3 million to work with. Whatever you have in your pool, you should be spending it. I mean, the, the bonus pools are not that big. Every team should be willing to spend up to – their entire bonus pool, especially when you're you're starting out with one of the the smallest bonus pools, uh, for having one of the best records in in the game the previous year. So, yeah, it's it's just about giving your scouts enough money to to be competitive down there. And and for some of these teams at the bottom, whether it's the Angels or or like you mentioned, John, the Orioles and and the A's. I mean, the A's are, are another one where when you're a, a small market team, and you know you're not going to compete for the top free agents on the, the major league free agent market. So, you know, you, you should be dependent on developing homegrown talent, whether that's through the draft yeah. or through the international market. And I think the A's are going to change that this year. I think they're going to be a little bit more aggressive internationally, but really over the last few years, they, they just haven't been. And it's just so, it, it's, it's just so strange. You mentioned them. This is an organization that broke the mold in 2008, giving uh, Michael Anoa $4.25 million. I mean, it seemed like that was a, a supposed to be a harbinger of things to come. Instead, um, I don't, I don't, I didn't, they didn't get a lot of return off Michael Anoa. They, they seem like they haven't gotten a lot of international return since then. Um, the other team toward the bottom, I didn't mean to start off, but we were going to have, a, we have a break in a second. Uh, so I wanted to get to this other team. The, the most surprising team toward the bottom for me, Ben, was the Tigers. You do the Tigers' top 30 list every year. Um, it feels like when the Detroit Tigers have prospects, they're largely international in nature. It's like they're either from Venezuela or the Dominican or the Southeastern Conference. There's no in-between for Venezuela for the Tigers. And they've been so successful at uh, fines in Latin America. Is that why the Tigers didn't spend as much? Because I, you know, I was even talking to someone with the Tigers organization last week about how good their vibe is in their international department, how they work together. Um, they have a lot of confidence in their evaluations. Was this just a, just a matter of the Tigers missed out on some top-level players or they get the guys they want and they just didn't have to spend that much money for it? Yeah, I think part of it is so their bonus pool is only a tick over $2 million. So when you have one of the best records in baseball, you're going to have one of the smallest bonus pools. So they're a team that, that hasn't, been a team, they haven't been a team that's gone over their bonus pool yet since the pool started, and they're certainly much more focused on the the guys who can help their 25-man roster right now. Uh, so when you're talking about committing big money to an international free agent who's a 16-year-old kid who's several years away, or even a prospect who's in the farm system who can be traded away to help the major league team. Uh, that's pretty much those guys have not been a, a priority uh, for them to, to build that way through homegrown talent. They've, they've liked to use those players to do anything they can to help the, the major league roster immediately. So for the Tigers, it's, you know, they, they've been very successful. I think, like you said, particularly in Venezuela, signing a lot of players for, smaller bonuses who've popped up into into pretty good prospects for them, uh, whether it's guys they've held on to or, or used in trades with other clubs. They also have, you know, they, they've got to spread their money out a little bit more than most teams they had. Well, they had a Venezuelan Summer League team. Obviously, <laughs> the, the Venezuelan Summer League no longer exists. Uh, but now they have, essentially, they're going to have they're gonna have a Dominican Summer League team and then two Gulf Coast League teams which one of them will kind of be like their advanced uh, DSL team, essentially. Uh, so they have a lot of roster spots to fill out. they got to spread their money around a little bit more. But uh, for them, I, I don't think it's necessarily cheapness the way it is on the part of some of these other teams uh, at the bottom or short-sightedness or anything like that. 
I just think it's, you know, they've had a lot of success uh, filling out the, their rosters with less expensive players and, and finding talent, especially in Venezuela with those players and, and just being able to, or, or deciding to stick to their bonus pool, which is one of the, the lower ones in the game. Right. They seem like that's, that just seems like an organization that if things don't get better soon in Venezuela, that's going to, might affect them disproportionately than other clubs because they just feel like they're one of the, more successful teams in Venezuela in scouting in the, like you said, they were one of the last five teams that had a VSL team. So it feels like the uh, diminished uh, access that major league teams have in Venezuela for a variety of reasons, uh, criminality and the demise of Venezuela as a civilized state being the top two reasons, um, disproportionately affects the Tigers. Is that, is that a fair conclusion? Uh, it's it's possible. I mean, the teams that they're certainly heavily involved in Venezuela. I mean, I think what just the key to being successful in in Venezuela or, or really any country is, is having good scouts on right. the ground there. And uh, the Tigers have good scouts who are based in Venezuela. It's it's harder for uh, American scouts to get into Venezuela. You need to have a, a visa to get in there. So. You know, you can send your assistant GM or your GM or director of player personnel, whoever, down to the Dominican Republic on a, a day's notice. And it's, it's pretty easy to get them in there to, to see players in the Dominican Republic. Not so much in, in Venezuela. Uh, international directors are, are still going there. A lot of them are, are not going quite as much as they used to. So, you know, there's a lot more reliance on trusting what you're your Venezuelan supervisor and, and your Venezuelan area scouts are seeing. So if, especially if you're talking about committing big money to uh, a player in Venezuela and there's a ton of talent still there, uh, probably more than ever in, in the opinion of, of a lot of scouts who are there. But, yeah, it just comes down to, to trusting those scouts and having good scouts on the ground. And that's, I think it, in some ways it might be a, an advantage for the Tigers just because they're, hmm. uh, they're so well entrenched in that country. That's a great way. That's a great way to think about it. Um, we're going to talking uh, talking international baseball with Ben Badler and JJ Cooper. I'm John Manuel. I want to remind you that we're uh, sponsored by SeatGeek. And if you've ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online, you need to try SeatGeek. Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees at checkout, but SeatGeek has made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. And for me, uh, there's they might be giants coming to Cat's Cradle, JJ, twice in the next two weeks, back to back nights. I'm looking for tickets for the kids' show because I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and I'm hitting SeatGeek, and that's really the only place I ever ever go to check for tickets anymore. Um, I've downloaded the app. It's a great place to get tickets. On, uh, you check your phone. They get the best tickets, and what they do is they put the hassle out of shopping for tickets because it pulls all the tickets available on other online sites and apps into one place. You save time. You don't miss any deals, and you can set alerts for upcoming games or shows and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. All our minor league baseball teams are on here too, JJ. Uh, and even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade. They don't use the 2080 scale. Maybe if they sponsor the BA podcast longer, they're going to start going 2080. They use a little simpler state, uh, scale. It's red, yellow, green. I think we all understand. Amazing. It's amazing how easy warning, it is. Warning, warning, warning. You know. And you don't want this red ticket. But they, they use that uh, grade based on value. It makes it easy to find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use the detailed maps on SeatGeek's app to see the view from your seat. Best of all, they're honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with, with huge fees at checkout. Baseball America podcast listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code BA20, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BA20. So uh, if you haven't done that already, please do that. And thanks again to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. I, I do love, if you look right now, we've got opening day starting this weekend You know, for Major League Baseball. Tell us you wanted to go to a Royals game for opening night. Royals-Mets, the World Series. Part one of the two-part or three-part series of celebrating our championship in the Mets' face. You're going to pay a lot of money to go to that game. If you want to go to, say, the Royals-Twins games next Friday, 
I know this is going to stun you, but you're going to pay about, you know, oh, I don't know, an eighth of what you would pay to go on opening night. But I can't even look at love looking at stuff like that, even for games I'm not going to go to. Kind of interesting. Right. So, but Ben, as we look at it, let's flip it back to the front, to the top of this. What jumps out is, is that you have teams here who spend a lot of money because Cubans cost a lot of money in, in <laughs> this market. I mean, that's the reality of it. But then you also have one team up there, the Cubs, who they spend a lot of money kind of in the more traditional uh, international market. Kind of talk, if you could explain a little bit what their approach was. This is obviously not the first time the Cubs did this. The Cubs have already been in the penalty box and, and have come back out of it. But, but kind of what was the Cubs' approach this year? Their, their approach this year, I'd say, probably started in 2014 or, or possibly earlier than that, really, because in 2013, July 2nd, they immediately went over their bonus pool. They signed Glaber Torres. They signed Eloy Jimenez. They signed Jen Ho Sang, a bunch of other players as well, and went over their bonus pool. So at that time, you go over your pool – you're limited to signing players for no more than $250,000 for one year. Now it's a two-year penalty for uh, no more than $300,000. So obviously the Cubs are, are a very aggressive team. They've spent a lot of money internationally before the pools, since the pools have been in place. And they said, all right, well, <laughs> we're going to be under the pools for, for a full year. Can't sign anyone for more than $250,000. None of these premium-type talents are, are going to be available to us. So, all right, let's look, you know, a year or let's look two years really in advance and start scouring the top 2015 players uh, while other teams are really more focused on 2014 guys. So the Cubs really got a, a jump start scouting the 2015 class and being very aggressive on those players before – a lot of teams were really bearing down on those players. I mean, the, the pace of the international market has really accelerated quite a bit over the last couple of years, and in part just because of this, uh, with, with teams being in the penalty and saying or, or having spent all their bonus pool money really on July 2nd and having committed it before then and saying, all right, well, let's look down the road a year in advance or, or more than a year in advance and trying to beat other clubs to the punch on, on these players and doing our homework before other teams really get a chance to bear down on some of the top talent for the upcoming years. And, and the Cubs were were certainly a team that, that did that. And I don't think it was any secret that they were being very aggressive years in advance uh, scouting out the 2015 class. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, players from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, uh, Mexico, I think they, they probably were the most aggressive. Yeah, they definitely were the most aggressive team signing Mexican players last year. Uh, Panama, they, they really were, were all over Korea. the world. Yeah, yeah, South Korea. They, they signed an outfielder uh, for a for million dollars from uh, South Korean high school there. Um, so, yeah, they were, they were very aggressive throughout the world, uh, signing a, a whole bunch of different kinds of players, some of which were like when you're going to be that aggressive early on in the scouting process, uh, you're probably going to sign some guys who were not so much consensus type guys, whether it was uh, Jonathan Sierra and Alfie, though they gave two and a half million dollars to who uh, I think a lot of other teams just thought was, you know, had some power and, and a good frame, but pretty raw. Obviously the Cubs saw him much, much differently or, or Henderson Perez a uh, catcher that they signed out of Venezuela, uh, who, who was a guy several teams just said, you know, we didn't even get a chance to, to see him. But uh, a lot of quality talent in that mix, too. Uh, around us, Adiman, a uh, you know, very smart, polished, instinctive shortstop. Uh, he's not, not quite the uh, physicality that uh, Glaber Torres has. He, he's not going to have, uh, not that I expect Glaber Torres to be a big power bat, but uh, he just doesn't have as much physicality as, as Glaber Torres does, but just another high baseball IQ guy, uh, puts the bat to the ball, uh, has a you know pretty smooth action to shortstop and a pretty good chance to stick at that position. Uh, Jose Alberto's the, the Mexican pitcher they signed. 
uh, for a lot of money, and, and the Mexican shortstop they signed as well. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking. Oh, Isaac Paredes, who was one of their best hitters at the 15 and under, or, or the, their best player, uh, their best position player at the 15 and under World Cup uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, two the two biggest signings out of Mexico last year, uh, Jonathan Perlaza and, and Miguel Amaya. Those guys were consensus top, you know, top 30 prospects in, in the market last year. So, uh, you know, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money in Latin America the way they did, or or the way the Yankees did a couple of years ago. You're going to have a, a ton of expensive uh, misses, but you know, if, if two or three of these guys pan out for them, it, it's going to be a successful year. And here we're three years out, and you know, the, of that initial class you talked about, and Glaber Torres, uh, Eloy Jimenez, Jeno Singh, all three of those guys are in their top 30. But even there, I mean, Will, Wilson Contreras was signed, what, six, seven years ago, and really just had his, his breakthrough season in 2005, and, you know, 15. due to uh, 2015, yeah, and due to what, uh, a lot of details the Cubs don't want to go into, he's been, he'd been eligible for the Rule 5 draft four years in a row. And just been out there because his contract had been voided after he signed. So um, some guys take uh, more con- more conventional paths; others, uh, not so much. I just you know, I, I like uh, I, I like the the volume approach that the Cubs have taken and the Yankees took. It seems like that's kind of what uh, that that works both in the draft, but especially in the international uh, you know market where you're like you said, the Cubs are evaluating players when they're 14, 15 years old. You have to go volume. But I guess the other reason that a lot of those guys aren't consensus, Ben, is that when the Cubs are looking at you as a 14- or 15-year-old the, and kind of making these commitments, the market, other teams don't even need to see those players as much. Is that, isn't that part of the reason why these guys aren't consensus? Because they aren't seen by as many other teams because they already have deals basically in place with, with some of these clubs when they're 14, 15 years old? Uh, so but part of it, yeah, there, there is some difficulty for certain players who kind of, yeah, reach an agreement very early on, get taken off the market maybe a year in advance, and you just, once you have an agreement in place, you're not going to go around to a whole bunch of other academies and right. do tryouts or showcases. There's not really any point to it. The, the team that you have an agreement in place with doesn't want you doing that. So that's that's part of the agreement is, all right, we'll give you X amount of money and we'll sign you on July 2nd, but just don't, you know, go around to all these other academies and do tryouts. Uh, so that's that could be part of them, and then they'll show up at maybe an MLB international showcase just to show up, and uh, they might be there. So there is some part of that that's true. Uh, I, I think in, in the case of, you know, Sierra, for example, I, I think teams just generally – he wasn't a consensus guy. So the teams just they they saw him. They just weren't quite as high on him. And, and when he showed up, especially at the MLB International Showcase, there was I mean there was some swing and miss in, in batting practice. It's I mean right. there's there's going to be uh, some strikeouts that that come with the power for a lot of teams. It was it was too many strikeouts. Uh, the Cubs obviously saw him in a a much much different light. Whereas you know somebody like Jonathan Perlaza. Who, who they gave a million dollars to, uh, not going to play shortstop. He's, he's going to be, I mean, you got to improve his defense to be able to play second base, but, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious when you just watch him take one swing how explosive his hands are, uh, the kind of, uh, it, it's not enormous raw power, but uh, the ball jumps off his bat at a pretty high exit velocity just because of the, the strength and the hand speed that he's able to, Generate so it, there's some physical limitations to it. It's more of a, a filled out type body, but uh, somebody like him or, or Miguel Amaya, the catcher they signed out of Panama, who everybody is just raving about his his receiving abilities and, and defense behind the plate. Uh, there was there was a bit more consensus on on those guys or an Adamon uh, compared to uh, somebody like Sierra. But well, another thing we wanted to touch on a little bit is is uh, I just got to see the Phillies at the. Uh, in Clearwater, and got to see Jalen Ortiz, which I was kind of excited. First time I've seen him since the, uh, the they brought all the players over at the uh, NHSI, last, NHSI year. last year, which was kind of cool. But it, the Phillies had a, a very – they were the biggest spending team, correct me if I'm wrong, that didn't go into the penalty. They managed to spend a lot 
and stay within their parameters because they had such a big uh, a big bonus pool. But the Phillies did that with uh, Ortiz. They're they're picking a uh, a pretty big bet on Ortiz, are they not? Yeah, it's, it's not the typical strategy that they've typically taken. Usually, they've they spread their money out a little bit more. But uh, this this past year, they really went not completely all in on one guy because they were able to get Rafael Marchand, who's a, a pretty very advanced Venezuelan hitter. He's, he's got some physical limitations. He, he's not that big. He's not going to hit for a lot of power, but it's just a guy who hits everywhere he goes and is, is still wearing the catching position. But uh, he, he was a he was a really good sign for them, especially for for $200,000. But, yeah, obviously the, the biggest signing they made was, was Jalen Ortiz. In, in all uh, kinds biggest, of ways, the biggest signing. Hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, just an, an enormous, <laughs> uh, enormous human being. I mean, it's it's a concern when when you look at him and when you're that big at 16, 17 years old. It's it's probably going to be hard for him to stay in the outfield. Although he moves around better than you would think for somebody his size, but it's it's not like he's you know. I guess players can get into into better shape as they get older. But generally, you're going to expect guys to get bigger and stronger and heavier as they get older, especially when they're still teenagers. So I think most likely he's he's going to end up at first base, even though he, he does have a good arm. It's, it's kind of a shame to waste that at, at first base, but uh, it's it's huge power. I mean, it's, it's the biggest raw power of anybody in the class. It's just that when he... Uh, when he faces live pitching, it's it's a lot of off balance swings, a lot of adjustments he's going to have to make to uh, improve his uh, you know improve his contact rate, uh, keep the strikeouts down. Uh, if he can keep that in check, I mean it's it's enormous power that he has. It's, it's middle of the order type power, no question. He has the power to to play first base. It's just a matter of whether he can make the the right adjustments as a hitter and with his pitch recognition. Uh, to cut down on, on all the swing and miss in his game right now. The other thing that kind of segues to another thing I wanted to touch on you, almost all of the guys who got big money, especially non-Cuban division this year, are hitters. And one of the things you wrote about at BaseballAmerica.com is is that really we've kind of come to the point, you mentioned about how Noah got so much money years ago. Yeah, four and a quarter million. Nowadays, it really seems like the teams look at it as, we'll spend on the bats and then – We'll pay a little bit for a lot of pitchers because we just don't know which of these pitchers. Some of these guys are going to turn out to be really great bargains, but it, it does seem like that really there's almost this feeling of you don't need to spend a lot of money to get good pitching in the Latin international market. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's yeah. Just like you said, you look at just look at the way the teams are spending their money. They're they're not spending it. On pitchers, you know, if you want to spend six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars or so for uh, a guy who who you really like, I mean, that would still be a kind of a top of the market type bonus for a pitcher. Every you know, obviously, there's some exceptions. Uh, I'm sure the Red Sox are not uh, regretting the 1.8 million dollars they gave to Anderson Espinosa. Working out um, well. Yeah, it's, it's working out well. Yeah, he's. He's still far away from, maybe not quite as far as most players his age, just because he is very polished for for somebody who's still a teenager uh, with with only a year of, of pro ball under his belt. But for the most part, teams are looking at the track record of pitchers who've signed, and it's, it's a lot of guys who are getting to the major leagues and signed for very small bonuses because they were. You know, maybe throwing 86, 89 miles an hour when they sign, maybe touching 90, 91 uh, at most usually. But uh, they had, you know, skinny frames, a lot of strength projection left on them, quick arms. And once that strength comes, they sign with a team. They they get on a regular throwing program, start strengthening their shoulders, their legs. All of a sudden, the velocity jumps quickly. I mean, there was... If you read through all the reports I wrote, there's there's several guys who who have either gained a couple of miles an hour on their fastball already, or some of them, you know, within a, a month or two, gained five miles an hour right. on their fastball. It's and it's not, you know, you see somebody doing that and they're 
26 years old, you, you get suspicious about obviously some sort of uh, anabolic steroids being involved. But with when you're 16 years old and, and you're still growing, I mean, not just getting stronger, but just I mean, getting taller in some cases for some of these guys. That's the that's just the natural curve of, of what you're expected to do at that age. So teams are saying, all right, uh, what, you know, we're not going to invest a ton of money in a pitcher who's 16 years old, who, you know, in a best case scenario, maybe is, is touching 93 or 94, which is great velocity for that age. But if you're a major league starter and you're topping out at 93, 94, it's really not, I mean, that's, at best, an average fastball. Hmm. Uh, there's really most of these guys who are even signing have it, it's a lot of slurvy type breaking balls. Teams are just looking for somebody who has uh, some rotation, some feel to spin the ball. Obviously, there's a couple of guys who are a bit more advanced with their curveball, whether it's you know Anderson Amarista with the Rockies or Alvaro Cejas uh, that the that the Cardinals signed a couple of pitchers out of Venezuela, but. For the most part, you're not really going to see a plus pitch, and certainly not a consistent plus pitch, out of any 16-year-old pitcher out of out of Latin America, or probably just about anywhere. So why invest big money on on those guys when you have a little bit more safety in the bat, less injury risk with them, especially for for guys who are so far away from the big leagues, and you know buy your arms in, in bulk. I mean, there's so many guys like. You know, wrote about who this guy signed for ten thousand dollars this year, and then already he's you know touching ninety six, ninety seven, or a hundred miles an hour right. uh, in some cases. So I think mean, that's that's definitely the approach that uh, a lot of teams are, are taking in Latin America. You just wrote that uh, story uh, last week. It's still trending on BaseballAmerica.com about five uh, international prospects signed basically from the twenty fourteen signing class, where the majority of them who were their velocities now up, and they've all touched a hundred miles an hour, but. JJ, you undersold it. Uh, of the top thirty bonuses, Ben, uh, on our uh, the international signing class, two are pitchers. Two. Top thirty, two are pitchers. So you you you, you get the soft sell there. Uh, and, and then the other part of that that I wanted to touch on was Jalen uh, uh, Ortiz. Um, and we talked about it last year, Ben. I think on a podcast when he signed. Actually, I think we did one in July where we touched on this about how he not, not only was it not a consensus, but he got the, the largest bonus of any Dominican. He was number eighteen. On our list, so it's we talk about non-consensus. He was number eighteen on the list, got the largest bonus of any Dominican player. Um, we have to talk about the Cuban market. It's in the news uh, with the Rays going to Havana. Uh, we need to talk about that trip a little bit, um, and uh, just just in general. But Ben, I mean, I, I think this your chart illustrates it very well. Whether it's Juan Moncada and his thirty million dollar, thirty one point five million dollar bonus, almost single handedly pushing the Red Sox to number two in international spending. Last year, you mentioned it with Baldo Keane just as an $8 million bonus, but how that affected the Angels for this past season. Um, it really does feel like, in the way that, do you agree with the statement that Commissioner Manfred has made that the Cuban market and the uh, bursting of the dam of the Cuban market broke MLB's international bonus pools? Or do you think the pools would have gotten broken anyway without this flood of Cuban talent? I think the system that they created from day one was broken so uh, <laughs> I think that the, the when the Yankees went over their bonus pool they didn't sign any Cuban players yeah. and they dropped I think 17 million dollars or so before taxes which, which takes them up to about 34 million or so in spending you had other teams that were going over their bonus pool which which is you know, it's not really a, a loophole or anything like that. It's just that's part of the rules. You're allowed to do it. So, uh, and I think there's other flaws in the system as well that they just didn't think out and they they didn't address. That they, they I think they believe that all right, we're going to set up a system of penalties for the draft and a system of penalties for the international system and and this penalties are very strict on the draft side teams don't go over their pools at least not to the extent never 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 be losing yeah traffic yeah but go for a little bit just for you know small overage tax for uh, you know a thousand dollars something like that but 
they're not losing draft picks. So it's you know that system is working uh, by and large on on the draft side. It's you know they're able to uh, keep keep their spending in check, keep control of their costs, which is what they really want to do, uh, both in, in the draft and, and internationally. Uh, but the system they set up in place internationally uh, just didn't work. I, maybe in, in theory it, it worked when they were trying to think this out in their minds, but anybody who's spent time or understands the international market knows that if you're only if you're not allowed to sign a player for more than three hundred thousand dollars internationally, it's really not that big of a disincentive for teams to not go over their bonus pool. I mean, the Yankees went over, and who are their best? I mean, their best prospect. I mean, Severino, Luis Severino is not a prospect anymore, uh, but if he was, he'd be their number one prospect. He might be their number one starter right now. Right. Uh, but him and Jorge Mateo were both signed for under three hundred thousand dollars. The, most teams, I mean, if, if not their best prospect, then one of their best international prospects was somebody they signed for under $300,000. So uh, there's a lot of guys, even just talking to teams every year, I'll talk to them about their their international signings, and they'll say, yeah, you know, this guy that we signed for you know pretty much no money or, or a smaller bonus is just probably the best guy we signed, even better than the guy we signed for a million dollars. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things that can change quickly and a lot of different factors that can affect a, a player's price in Latin America. So uh, I, I would I would say that the, the system was broken from the day they, they started it, and the influx of Cuban players has uh, just further exposed all of the brokenness of the system in place. What, now, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, because we are coming up on a new CBA before long. Do you think there's going to be massive change? Do you think there's going to be minimal change? Or, or what do you think? I'm not going to ask you to say how would you, quote, fix it. because right. that. But what do you think that MLB is going to do to try to modify how it is working right now? Yeah, so you, know, you can't have a system where the Dodgers are spending $90 million on <laughs> – uh, international players, not even including Hector Oliveira, who's a major league free agent essentially, or or Pablo Mian Fernandez, who they gave eight million dollars to on a minor league deal, which was about eight million dollars more than anybody can understand why they <laughs> gave him eight million dollars. But you can't hear uh, the disdain or, in Ben's voice. You're not listening. <laughs> or yeah, Kenta Maeda. Or, I mean, he's an international free agent, right? Yeah, or or Yael Sierra, who's you know, an international signing who's exempt from the pools to who signed obviously in 2016, uh, and, and it's going to be. I mean, he's exempt. I would certainly still consider him a, a prospect uh, at this point, just because I don't think he's major league ready right now. Uh, but you can't have a team like that spending all that money, and then you know, the, a team like you know the Tigers that's invested internationally, uh, but just won't go over their bonus pool, spending you know under two million dollars, or the A's and the Orioles spending. You know, a million bucks each. That's just not not a good system to have. And primarily, the aside from competitive balance, they really just want to be able to rein in their cost and, and rein in uh, the amount that the owners are spending to to save themselves some money. Uh, so I think you're going to see uh, certainly a more restrictive system in place internationally when the CBA comes out in December. You know, you talk to different people who say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm certain there's going to be an international draft. Other people who are, are just as well connected in the game who say, oh, no, there's there's no way there's going to be an international draft. So, you know, I'd say it's 50-50. I really don't know whether it's going to be a draft or whether it's going to be, uh, a you know, a bonus pool system in place. But if, if it is a bonus pool system, I'm certain that the either it's going to be a hard cap or it's going to be a, a much more uh, restrictive system with much more severe penalties for going over your bonus pools. And I don't think the union is really going to stand in the way of anything that MLB wants to do with regards to these international amateur players because the union doesn't really care right. about anybody who's not, they don't care about international players. Really, I mean, they just don't really care about anybody who's not 
on the 40-man roster. I mean, they, I think they do a good job of protecting the rights of players who are on the 40-man roster, the players who are are in the union. But if you're a minor league player and you're making a thousand bucks a month, or you're a draft pick, or you're a 16-year-old kid trying to sign out of the Dominican Republic, I don't think the union is going to have any uh, major concerns about selling out their rights. And the thing about it is, is that they, yeah, they look at it as, is in some ways, those are dollars that are going there that are not going to players on the 40-man roster, Correct. which I don't, it's not ironic, but it is the reality is, is that in this day and age, teams would rather spend money, more money, on 18, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-olds than they would giving a bigger deal to a 31-year-old free agent, which is really what the the union is trying to protect it. There's, there are some, some tensions here that go beyond just the rule structure and go to kind of where the game is today, which should be interesting when the, the CBA rolls around, which is one of the stories. Yeah. It's one of the stories that Matt Eddie's actually working on guys is about how the major leagues are getting younger um, and how the average age is being driven down. I think there's two drivers for that, that this is what he's really researching and, which is the bigger driver? Is it trying to save money, which I think that's a big driver, or is it that you need younger players and more athleticism to deal with all this velocity and also to maximize run prevention? A 32-year-old is probably not going to maximize your run prevention as well as a 24-year-old. And I think these are the kind of the, the the analytics of the game are driving in both ends of this. It's driving you to greater return on investment of your your $2 million that you invest in a 17-year-old or 18-year-old or 16-year-old will get the organization so much more of a return than the $100 million free agent that you spent on a 32-year-old. Um, but the, And like you said, the union definitely is, it represents those 32-year-olds. And that's how you get, and I think uh, the other corollary of that the, is the, you drive a lot of PEDs out of the game, not all of them, but a lot of them. That's how you get 36-year-olds retiring. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, in a more of a PED era, you didn't have 35-year-old pitchers retiring. You had 35-year-old pitchers getting four-year uh, contracts. But now all these guys retire, and a lot of them go to camp, and they don't get uh, – so many of these guys are on minor league deals, and when they don't make a major league team because they don't have that guaranteed contract, they retire. Or they just retire early like a Dan Heron or a Mark Burley well, or these kind of guys. The other thing that jumps out with this is, is that the union will be interesting to see with the CBA because – there has been a very collaborative spirit in some ways in recent CBAs. They realize on both sides we don't want to strike. Yeah, definitely. That being said, if you're the union right now with the game getting younger, really what you logically should be pushing for is to get people paid earlier in their right. careers, whether it's free agency arriving earlier or whether it's raising the gate because really arbitration serves in many ways some of the same purposes. Right. Where and you obviously we know we're probably gonna have a, a draft pick compensation for free agents discussion going on. But to bring it back to the international, the other part of this is is and this may be a good way to wrap it up is you talked about it. Cuba, the massive and I do mean massive influx Exodus of, of Cuban players into the game. You do feel like in some ways, or at least I feel like in some ways this is something that's almost going to become a separate discussion because it is in many ways a different environment than the traditional signing players out of Panama, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, all that. Definitely. Where do you think we're going with that, Ben? Where do you think the MLB's going? Because when you say over 100 players coming over from Cuba, and as you've documented many times, in some cases putting their lives at danger in the way that they get over to the to play in the states, what do you think is likely to happen? Because when the commissioner says he wants one method of entry, that's his phrase, one method of entry for international players. How does that apply equally to a 16-year-old player from the Dominican or Venezuela or Panama and to a 25-year-old, basically professional from Cuba? But when he says one method of entry, he doesn't seem like he's making exceptions for that 25-year-old from Cuba. Yeah, and it's, uh, I'm not even quite sure how that would be, how he would plan to implement that. And it's something that, if you look back, I was looking the other day at a story in, in our magazine from, I mean, it must have been like the mid 90s or so, 
uh, I think Sandy Alderson was, was still uh, using the commissioner's office, and, and there was some quote about how, you know, the international draft is coming. It's, it's right. going to happen. So it was an Alan something project. that Yeah, this is something that MLB and, and the commissioner's office have been saying for, for decades is, is going to happen, and, and it hasn't happened yet uh, despite their efforts. So it could happen. I'm, I'm not saying it won't, but uh, it, it's not – not something they've been able to do yet, despite a lot of talk from uh, from their end. So uh, I think it's, it's gonna, it is, in fairness to them, it's going to be tricky to figure out how to draw up a CBA accounting for Cuban players, given given how many players are just off the island right now, but but also the, the complexities in potentially signing Cuban players directly. From Cuba and the potential changes in laws between the U.S. and the Cuban governments, I'm not quite sure how you could write up uh, a, a foolproof CBA that accounts for a potential federal uh, law changes. That's going to be a, a real tricky one. What I, what the Cuban side certainly wants is some type of system where they can basically just sell their players directly to major league teams the way that they do already uh, in Japan. I mean, Alfredo Despagne is basically doesn't even play in Cuba anymore. Right. He just plays in Japan. They brokered a contract for him to play over there. Uh, they previously did so for him to play in the Mexican League, and he was using a false Dominican passport to play in that league. So uh, <laughs> that didn't work out, and MLB uh, eventually squashed all players playing uh, Cuban uh, nationals playing in, in the Mexican League anyway, but Cuba, you know, Cuba wants to have their, they're open to having their players play in other parts of, uh, in other leagues, in other foreign professional leagues, uh, but they, they can't do that with Major League Baseball yet, so I think the the most likely scenario is, is you see some type of hybrid system between, uh, you know, the, the posting system that Major League teams have with Korea and Japan and the system where teams are, are signing players from Mexico, where if you're signing a Mexican player in probably like 99% of all cases, you're signing a, a, you know, even if it's a 16-year-old player, you're signing him directly from a Mexican league team that he's affiliated with, and, and then the Mexican league team keeps 75% of the bonus, and then the player only gets 25%, which is a pretty sweet deal for the Mexican League team, so I think you're going to see something similar in place probably between Major League Baseball and Cuba. I think the difference is that, you know, in, in Mexico you're signing, you know, whether it's Julio Urias, Roberto Osuna, uh, you're signing the top 16-year-old players out of Mexico. I don't think you're going to see that in Cuba. I think Cuba's going to want to keep their league, keep Serie Nacional up and running. It's it's certainly a, a very watered down league at this point. It's it's really really rough to to watch the games this year. Uh, there just isn't all that much of, of interest in major league teams anymore. But uh, they can they can rebuild the league if you know potentially shrinking the number of teams uh, from from 16. But uh, whether they do they do that or not, if they're able to retain their top young talent, and then you know whether it's a certain number of, of years that they have to to spend playing in Cuba before they're eligible to be posted or, or something like that. I think you could see some type of system where uh, the, the young Cuban players come up through uh, the Cuban Junior League and have to stay in Cuba for a certain number of years and then are allowed to uh, to be posted or made available to, uh, to be sold directly uh, to major league teams. I think that's that would be the system that, that I said, you know, I think the day after they came out with the – uh, Obama announced the, the loosened regulations of Cuba uh, in December 2014, I think it was. That's, that's what I said uh, at the time was going to happen, and, and certainly it seems like all the the arrows are, are pointing toward that direction for, for that type of system to go into place uh, at some point uh, in the semi-near future. The one other question that hasn't been answered that's still yet to be even almost, I guess, broached is, I'm fascinated about this. I know John's fascinated about this, and you're probably fascinated about this as well because we're all World Baseball Classic fans. And I do wonder if by 2017, with the thawing of the relationship, it seems like, between Cuban players who have left 
the island in the U.S. in the Major League Baseball. I don't know if it's a question about that, though. The Cubans have said they want to use right. expats. So it's up I, to them. Right. It's, not up to the, it's not up to Major League Baseball. It's up to the Cubans who plays for Cuba. So if the Cuban government expresses interest in I, I do using hope expats, that would be... they're going to, and it's going to look like the Dominicans team in 2013. And you can't tell me that the Dominican experience... Because Ben, and this is, I, I, I know I interrupted you here, JJ, right, but, go ahead. but this is what the great fear is in Cuba, is that its infrastructure of what it has built in baseball, which it should rightfully be very proud of, will be destroyed. And I, I can say that at the winter meetings, the commissioner said the right things about this. And I can tell you that there's that concern in other levels of international baseball, whether you talk to people at USA Baseball, Baseball Canada, uh, the English-speaking part of the international baseball community that I talk to, um, Greek baseball doesn't really have a big say in this. But uh, Canadian and American baseball officials, those guys who deal with it internationally, they share the same concern. They want Cuba's infrastructure preserved like the Cubans do because they want the best athletes in Cuba to still play baseball. And, and if that infrastructure in Cuba is damaged or destroyed, that may not happen. And I think the money the Cuban Federation would get from using its best Cuban players, expats included, in the WBC is only is one of the few ways that's going to happen. Same thing in 2020 if baseball's on the uh, Olympic docket in Japan, like it looks like it's going to be. I mean, that's a, if that doesn't happen, that's a huge negative for Cuba, isn't it, Ben? And how does it, I mean, I, is that the, what you hear in the international community as well, even from Dominican and Venezuelan sources, that... Cuba's infrastructure that funnels great athletes into baseball, we have to find a way to preserve that infrastructure, even if there's a significant change in the Cuban government? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that Cuba does well is that they have a, a very organized system of putting players in in the baseball games from a young age. I mean, it's, it's different in, in each country you go to. I mean, whether it's, it's Mexico is, is another country where it's, it hasn't produced a ton of talent, but the players that come out of there, especially the pitchers, are are very polished for their age and, and move pretty quickly uh, because they've grown up playing a lot of baseball. In, in the in Venezuela, there's there's a lot of uh, organized youth baseball culture uh, as well, and, and, and not quite to the same degree as, as Mexico, uh, but but Panama as well. There's a lot of organized youth leagues. The Dominican Republic, there's there's a ton of talent there, but it's just not the same level of organized game structure uh, from an early age. So you have a lot of players there who uh, don't have the same you know feel for pitching or overall baseball IQ. I mean, there's obviously it depends player to player, but you can really tell the difference between a player like uh, Jason Guzman, who the Royals signed, or or Aramis Adiman, the Cubs signed guys who grew up playing a lot of baseball compared to uh, some of the other players there who just are are good athletes and, and have great tools but don't have that same level of, of game experience uh, that the guys who've grown up playing a lot of baseball from the time they were young kids have. Uh, you see that a lot of in a lot of Cuban players who've grown up playing in the, the organized Cuban youth leagues that they have there. It, it's they're They're very... Uh, you know, obviously, you're, you're signing Cuban players who are older, but even the younger guys who are coming over. I mean, Adrian Morahone, who's sick. Well, he just turned 17 right. uh, recently. But you compare him, a uh, left-handed pitcher who, who I think the Padres are, are probably going to sign on July 2nd. Uh, he was the, the MVP at the 15 and under World Cup uh, a couple of years ago in Mexico, and, and you just watch him pitch, and it's got like it's, you know, it's it's good stuff. Uh, but it's it's like night and day pitchability, feel for what he's doing on the mound, ability to throw strikes, change speed, compared to to what you typically see out of a, a player the same age uh, who's in the Dominican Republic. So yeah, absolutely, being able to con- conserve the, the the structure that they have uh, to keep players playing baseball and in organized games is important. And uh, I I think they are open to having players. Uh, who've, who've left Cuba now, potentially play on the national team, not so much for you know any change in political reasons, mostly just because I think they realize we're going to get stomped right. in, the, in the WBC next year. I mean, it's the, the Cuban national team just gets worse and worse and worse, and now 
you know, the Gurriel brothers left, so it, it's getting even worse now. I mean, that team they sent up against the Rays was just uh, every pitcher they had was like 85 to 88. Uh, they got a couple of guys who can touch 90 or so, uh, but it's it's just a terrible pitching staff. You can put together a better pitching staff of Cuban players who are in the Bahamas and, and Mexico right. <laughs> and the Dominican Republic right now than, than you can in Cuba. It's just so remarkable, uh, Ben. The... I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's just so remarkable to think. I'm, I'm the old guy in here. JJ and I are the same age, but I've been here a long time. Just so the first times I saw Cuba in 1999 and 2000 and how those teams were so deep in pitching that Pedro Luis Lazo, who was the, who was the all-time wins leader in Serie Nacional, he didn't do that as a reliever, but he was thought of by American scouts as this closer Lee Smith comp because that's what he did internationally. And then you go to the tournaments. That's what the scouts all told me. That's because that's the only time they'd ever seen Lazo was out of the bullpen. And then you find out, oh, and there was not a lot of baseball stats for Cuba on the Internet in 1999, I can guarantee you. I had to go to the games in the Winnipeg and talk to the Cuban players and go, oh, I start. Lazo saying, I start in Cuba. In Serie Nacional, I'm a starter. I just close for the national team. But that's the depth of pitching they had where their best, the, the wins leader for Serie Nacional, oh, he was a luxury. We'll just close him internationally. Moment of truth guy. That's what he was. And, but they actually kind of used him as a true closer. And then, you know, uh, when they got behind, and uh, I think actually, no, he started the gold medal game in 2000, gave up the home run too. But, then, you know, Miles Rodriguez throwing 100 miles an hour as a 19-year-old in 2000. That was like, Back yeah, 100 miles he, an hour was. That's, well, I think it was 152 kilometers an hour. It was big. It was big KM, KMPH. Um, he, was, he was their moment of truth guy. He was their setup guy. He was Kelvin Herrera because they had so much else around him. And to see the change in the last 18 years, uh, 17 years of the, 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 just the sea change, where at that time Cuba still, the strength of their national team was still pitching. And that was after losing El Duque. After losing Levon Hernandez, they did have defections of players. Uh, the guy the Giants signed uh, when Levon left, I forget his name, Osvaldo Fernandez, I think yeah. was his name. There were so many Cuban pitchers, Rolando Rojo, Rene Rocha had gone before. There were so many Cuban pitchers who had defected. Now it's, just, it's, it's remarkable. I know a lot of Cuban pitchers have left the island, but the top talent is all the hitters. Uh, that just still stuns me. Um, I, I, I would presume that what changed is... Is this the way that the pitching has gone down? Not just that the I think there were probably always these hitters. I mean, obviously Omar Linares and uh, lots of other great hitters were on the Cuban uh, Pacheco, Kindelon were on the Cuban team back then. Um, we just noticed the pitchers more. It feels like it's just the pitching has gone gone down. It's not so much that the hitters have gone up. Am I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, and some yeah, some of them obviously have left, whether it's Chapman or, or Iglesias uh, right. with the Reds or. Or some of the younger guys who've left the island, like Morahone, Vladimir Gutierrez, uh, Norhe Ruiz, Yaito Sierra. But, but yeah, just in, in general, it's, it's definitely more hitting heavy, position player oriented in, in terms of the top talent, uh, both in Cuba and, and that's that's come out of Cuba to to the major leagues or guys you've signed as, as prospects uh, to uh, to minor league contracts. But even you know the, the pitching is terrible on the national team right now, but the hitting is is not it's not great either, and it, it's pretty bad lineup. It was a lot of guys who on that team against the Rays, which basically would be their World Baseball Classic team. Maybe maybe a couple other younger guys like uh, Luis Robert or Julio Pablo Martinez, uh, who are probably two of the top five players in Cuba right now in terms of major league potential, and, and they're both teenagers. Maybe some of those guys can step up obviously Martinez was on the premier 12 team but a lot of the guys they they had on that roster against the Rays were just older 30 plus year old guys who you know would be kind of an organizational roster filler at best on a double a triple a team guys would you know be productive hitters in in the Mexican league or something like that and it's just so much talent even just a couple of years ago uh, or a few years ago in, in the last world baseball classic in 2013 when they had Jose Abreu and, and Guillermo Heredia and Yasmani Tomas and uh, R.U. at uh, shortstop Guriel at, at third base. Uh, you know, obviously R.U. Baruena and, and Tomas haven't been very good so far, but 
and even just having those guys on the national team was was a huge step up from uh, what they what they've got going there now. Jose Miguel Fernandez left his name off, who's right. who's out of Cuba right now. I mean, he was a a key player for them too. So they've just lost so much talent uh, over the last two to three years that it's. I think they see the writing on the wall that if we go to the 2000 W 2017 WBC and we're not using Jose Abreu and we're not using Yulieski uh, Guriel and we're not using Aroldis uh, Chapman and, and all these guys who, who left Cuba who I think a lot of them want to play for the team and, and be able just to uh, to represent the Cuban people and, and represent their country. Uh, I think that they'd be a lot of them want to do that. I think they realize if they don't use those players, they're going to get they're going to get stopped. It's going to get ugly. <laughs> it's going to get ugly, and that's that's not what you want. But that's not what Cuba wants. But that's also not what MLB wants because to keep those young Cuban players playing uh, baseball, they want someone you to look up to. Don't want them going to all play soccer. That's exactly right. So that's uh, going to be definitely something to watch. Uh, ben, we could have done three hours. Uh, we did a lot already. We'll have to do this again next week. We'll have to do part two, uh, International Prospect Watch. Uh, go enjoy uh, opening day. Uh, I'll be in Pittsburgh for opening day. Ben, are you heading to Fenway for opening day? Or are you, you going to be in a major league park or just a minor league park next week for opening day? For uh, Yeah, probably go up somewhere for minor league opening day. Major league opening day, I'll probably uh, just spend the day on MLB TV and just gorge <laughs> on, uh, on games. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Enjoy the buffet of choices. It's a wonderful time to be a baseball fan. It's a wonderful time to subscribe to Baseball America because it's international review season. There's uh, more there to chew on than to digest than we can uh, consume in just one podcast. Uh, thanks for all the hard work, Ben. For the hard work, Ben. Uh, obviously, a lot more there for subscribers draft-wise as well. To draft season's coming up here. And, of course, the minor league season starting next week. So we will podcast next week on opening day for the minor leagues uh, as we do every week here on Thursdays at Baseball America. It's brought to you by SeatGeek. He's Ben Badler. He's J.J. Cooper. I'm John Manuel. Thanks for joining us. This concludes our program. Visit BaseballAmerica.com for more podcasts. Today's Baseball America podcast was sponsored by SeatGeek. Baseball America podcast listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BA20.